What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your election week check-in with pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how's it going, man? Count the votes. We like counting here. Yeah, we're recording um, day after November 3rd, so November 4th, if you do the math. And uh, we're still waiting to find out who is going to win this election. Uh, You know, I I think regardless of what comes out of it, it seems like polls are just worthless now. Um, You know, some may argue this this fell within polling error, but pretty much everything we're, we're seeing is like they struggled to capture a lot of voices in the country. So just wanted to ask you, Dave, uh, Nate Silver, overrated, underrated, properly rated? Where's he at for you? Oh, I have no problem with Nate. I actually think they're the ones who give the best context about when things happen. You know, they're talking about how like not all areas are actually reflecting any polling there. You know, it seems to be isolated to certain areas, right? So uh, I think they give the most well-rounded analysis at 538. So Nate Silver's cool. And polling's hard these days because it's such a it's pretty antiquated the old way of doing it and the new ways of doing it are you know new and thus kind of unproven so it's challenging yeah definitely um feels like there's going to be uh maybe a shake-up or hopefully new ways explored for polling because um you know it, it seems like especially like latino voices are not necessarily captured but Shout out to Nate Silver. I, I still respect him and uh, I still dig 538. Good analysis in my book. So we're going to uh, be talking about a couple of TV shows, a movie you saw, Dave, and some albums today. But before we do, hit that subscribe button if you're watching on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod or go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to catch the podcast any way you want to listen. All right, Dave, let's start with <laughs> Sam Smith. The exasperation uh, on your, in your voice. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, Sam Smith, now a uh, non-binary person, so using they, them pronouns. Um, they're a artist we've talked about uh, on the pod, you know, a decent amount. They come up when we talk about Disclosure, obviously being the vo- the vocals for some of their biggest hits. We reviewed their last album. I believe that was three years ago now yeah 17 yep so uh they're not new to the program in terms of topic but i struggle to understand where he falls in the lexicon of artists right now right because um i feel like he's got or they have a big profile but i'm not sure if their body of work backs up that profile and in listening to the new album love goes supposed to be um you know released back in may uh, pushed back to june then pushed back even further because the original name was to die for and they didn't want to have uh an album with the word die in it with COVID going on yeah definitely and i'm glad that they renamed it um i found myself feeling like sam smith excels in two lanes either slow sad ballads or upbeat dance edm music and in between the rest just feels very bland and not really catchy how are you feeling after love goes yeah i agree i mean that's the thing with 
with Sam Smith music, at least the music we've gotten, which probably was not what people expected to get after songs like Latch really exploded, mm-hmm. you know, about eight years ago almost. Now it's been a long time. Um, because, yeah, I mean, when this is like that pure vocal driven pop and the lyrics are really about intimacy and especially on this album like heartbreak right but it's so sanitized and safe and i feel like just low energy often which is weird to say because they do have a strong voice that's that's kind of been the hallmark right good singing but songs are often pretty dull to me pretty boring which is just disappointing because of the talent that's still very evident and you know, I think on a song like Diamonds, the second single, kind of is pure dance pop, um, more and more traditional dance pop, not something Sam's done a whole lot of. It's been a little more eclectic before, of course, with two big disclosure songs. But Diamonds, that song goes. I like that one a lot. That one's fun. But there's very little of that on this, and I just have a hard, I have a hard time maintaining my attention and that just disappoints me i mean track three another one that's got guy lawrence on on the keys once again half of disclosure but that that that's no latch that's no omen you know so sam smith's career is just to me just a kind of wasted potential despite the fact that he's they've really uh successful and popular still yeah i I agree with you on diamonds and just the overall take on the album is that it does feel safe in a lot of ways. And, you know, I found myself gravitating towards a couple of songs that I thought were pretty strong, but again, it's, it falls into those two lanes and I don't know how you make a cohesive album when you're jumping from tempo to tempo like that. So the the songs I think I really enjoyed the most were um, dance till you love someone else. Um, I really liked the like upbeat poppiness, like uh, like pop EDM dance uh, vibe of that one. Um, For the lover I lost is just like a great piano ballad, but completely opposite type of song where it's downbeat. Um, you know, it's accompanied by a string section that keeps kind of swelling up in the second half of the song. Uh, Kids again was another song I thought was pretty strong. But again, that like slow, sad, nostal- uh, nostalgic type song. But again, it's safe, like you said. So I'm, I don't know. I guess I just am trying to like understand or, or try to think about Sam Smith has such a, he's such a known name. And I am just feeling like, like you said, how does he reach that potential? And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Disclosure, obviously, we talked about thrives off of their creativity, their eclecticness, their willingness to get weird. Is Sam Smith ever going to allow himself to get weird? And as he's understanding or at least becoming public about that sexual identity, I I want that just like dance queer album that you know disclosure is all over and really like pushing him to explore and experiment more and 
Um, I'm really hoping we get something like that from him because if this is going to be who's going to be, it feels like there's probably a career there, but I just feel like it's not a very interesting one. Yeah, and to that point about being weird, I think the closest Sam gets on this is it's brief. It's that moment on Love Goes with Labyrinth. Labyrinth obviously very successful mm. uh, mega producer. And that production from Labyrinth, th- those are some kind of out there loops. Uh, those mm-hmm. riffs I thought were really cool and interesting, but it- it's such a fleeting moment that it's hard to uh, latch onto it. You know, <laughs> um, I was quite disappointed. My Oasis didn't think Sam uh, held up his end of the bargain collaborating with Burna Boy, which is disappointing considering the run mm-hmm. Burna is on of late. But yeah, I mean. I guess Sam Smith's just not for me, at least in this current iteration, because he's having a successful career and it's not doing a lot for me, apart from like those obvious like one or two songs every album that are just good. But like album wise, it's very disappointing still. Uh, I guess I'm wondering for you, do you like this album uh, more than the last one we we got from him? Um, Mm. uh, The Um, Thrill of It All, 2017. I think about them all the same. There's like a, mm. only a song or two I really like on each one. Like, you know, the obvious hits he's had, Stay With Me. Too Good at Goodbyes, I Know Not the Only One. Like, I like those songs. Those are really mm. good songs. There's a reason they're big. But apart from that, there's only a moment or two on each one. And that's still the case for me, three albums in. Yeah, I, I do feel like Love Goes is a little bit stronger for me than the thrill of it all. I'm not sure if I like it more than the, the highs of in the lonely hour but i do feel like there is there's more to this that i like um you know a song i didn't mention that i thought was pretty strong as well was how do you sleep um i thought the the pre-chorus and the chorus and that was pretty strong so uh i do think there's just more i find myself liking but again it's not enough for me to feel like this is a good album so um hoping he push or that they push themselves more to um, experiment want to jump into ariana sure all right well we've talked about ariana quite a bit because she be working dog yes, sir. third album in the last two years sweetener thank you next now positions um positions not what i expected from ariana either you know um subverting expectations in in some ways on this i felt i want to kind of give you the floor first because i know uh thank you next was i believe on your top 10 albums of the year last year so big ari stand right here dave how are you feeling about positions let down Hmm. yeah uh it's not bad but it's not nearly as uh, inventive and surprising as the last two, which perhaps makes sense given the volume quantity she's putting out as someone at the top of the game like she is. But it's just kind of lacking those uh, those bangers that I come mm. to expect of late. And that's hard for me to get past at the end of the day. Um, you know, I, there's been some criticism about the lyric. I think the lyrics are definitely uneven, depends. There are an album cut or two I do like. But the songs that are positioned to be the big hits, the big singles, some of them are all right, but these don't compare to some of those undeniable hits of the past two albums. So 
I'm a, I'm a little let down, but perhaps this is going to mark a true shift in the kind of music she's trying to make. You know, I mean, it, she, the last two albums were very much a product of the whirlwind of experiences she's had in the public eye, namely with the Manchester bombing and her uh, fraught public relationships. So a lot's been going on, and she seems to still be handling all that very well for a public person. But music-wise, yeah, I'm always a little down by Positions. You know, Positions, like you said, is not a bad album. And when I say it's subverted expectations, this album felt like Ariana wanting to make something sleek, but not bombastic. And when you look at the the list of producers on this thing, it's kind of shocking how toned down this is, right? So you have London on the track, Murder Beats, uh, TB Hits, Anthony Jones. Like you have some some big names here producing this, and, and you kind of expect to be getting something that feels grand and large. And Ariana, obviously a, a small human being with an enormous voice, you're like, okay, we're we're gonna get those moments, but those those big vocal moments almost never come on this. And it feels in a lot of ways like uh, um, this was more of a, a concept album. You know, like she's like the whole vibe of this is horny and sad, right? That's kind of the, the, the two emotions that come through most on this. Um, and I still think there's a lot of moments to like, but it just was not at all what I was expecting to get from her. I know you're feeling a little bit let down, but what were the things you thought were were well done or that you you did like on this? I, I think the the, hoard, the hoardiness kind of throughout is very amusing. Pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, the second track is 34 plus 35. Do the math if you need to. She literally um, says at the end, "I want a 69 with you." Okay, yeah. we I get mean, it. <laughs> like, uh, just give me them babies, you know, and mm-hmm. like it, it's very explicit, very much in the vein of uh, WAP and definitely a. Uh, Fitting of the time, it's fun, and also you know, given that this is a quarantine album, you know, maybe maybe, maybe Ari wasn't getting it as much as she wanted to. <laughs> I mean, she's social distancing. That's that's good to hear. Um, <laughs> still need to uh, got their needs. Where where are those masks? <laughs> but you know, I mean, ly- lyrically, I, I I was a little let down on this just because I felt like there were some songs that almost come across as like fillery. You know, mm. stuff like like Motive featuring Doja mm. Cat probably going to be positioned as a single, get a video. But I don't think that hook is is strong at all. Mm. You know, I mean, shut up the first track. It's an intro track, but also didn't didn't do a whole lot for me lyrically. Like there's no breathing. There's no ghost in like the past mm-hmm. two albums, you know, like I, I, don't, I don't think of an obvious highlight in that vein. Now, there are some uh deep cuts right i think towards the end my hair nasty west side i think those yeah. are some of the best moments mm-hmm. but they're, they're 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 i feel like those are more like 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 vocal moments versus like songs designed to be big bops you know like off the table with the weekend it's not love me harder you know i think mm-hmm. the best feature is probably ty dolla sign and safety net but yeah like, i i agree i think ty dolla sign actually really sounds amazing on that that track and they they have a good chemistry um but overall i think all the features were a bit of a letdown like that doja cat track motive like you said came across as pretty 
weak and forgettable. Whereas I feel like any other album, if, you, if you're getting Doja Cat at this point, you're trying to make something that's either going to be all over TikTok or that is going to be all over radio, TV, something big and loud. And this was just not that. Um, you know, I think I like this a little bit more than you did. I think the the toned down R&B trap pop sound really stuck with me and it just kind of fits more for the type of music I like. Um, you know, you mentioned my hair. I think that like jazzy R&B slow jam type sound is is great. Um, the like clicks in the background for the percussion I thought was really great. Um, positions I thought was cool with like the plucky guitar kind of gave me a little bit of like uh, mid 2000s JT vibes on that. Um, what like what goes around comes around. Um, I thought 630. Um, I really loved the chorus on that. The are you down? What's up? Like I thought that was so good. Um, I don't just really catchy. And then of course um, my last the last song I'd written down here that I thought was really strong was off the table. The way that they use like the violins and like uh, paired them with synths to like kind of create that like rising and falling sound I thought really uh, created a, a strong aesthetic but it's funny because when I think about these songs I'm thinking more about the production of them and not so much Ari's vocal performance I, I suppose now I'm talking it out yeah similarly like on Love Language I really liked what they did with the string production there and West Side as I said it's like more of like a vocal display the use of background vocals like in parts it's like it's Ari's vocals again but they're like dubbed over i thought that sounded pretty cool but and yeah positions like i said it may mark just a, a change because it's less of that hip-hop cadence that we got from the past two mm -hmm. uh, albums and i'm curious to see if this marks kind of an evolution because positions is probably the closest she got on this to a banger of the past two years and of course it was the lead single like the you know, really good video makes sense in, for that regard. But the rest of the album doesn't kind of almost fit with positions to me, which is just interesting, you know? So I'm, I'm just kind of curious to see really if this is a, a shift or this is a product of quarantine and it's more of a blip for her, whether you like it or you don't. Um, but I mean, we've gotten three albums in two years and two months, so it's hard to bank on more coming soon. You know, mm -hmm. you have to figure her time will be occupied with touring as soon as she's able. So uh, we'll, we'll be paying attention. But yeah, this was it, it, you're right. Definitely subverted. I think it subverted everyone's expectations, whether you liked it or not. And, and the thing is, like, um, I really applaud Ariana for exploring, like, the grief of her past. And, and I think that, like, content and, and that idea comes across really well in this um and if this is bad ariana like it's still good like <laughs> you know like if this is her floor like uh that that's a great floor to have so um i, I really do i i expect us to be getting some more of those like huge vocal bangers in the future but you know ha have some range girl like maybe you don't need to be making these crazy bombastic albums sometimes you can tone it down if that's what you feel you gotta do explore that grief why don't we move on to something that is bombastic though mando uh the mandalorian season two episode one chapter nine return into disney plus uh what we got like a 50 minute season opener 
Almost. Oh, yeah. 54 minutes. Longest of the season. Give it to me. Our series. Put it right into my veins. Um, you know what I really liked about this episode? There's, there's a lot. I was totally inca- like in, in raptured in this. Like I was just so into this episode. Couldn't wait on Friday morning to wake up and watch. Uh, totally met all my, everything I wanted. All my expectations were very much met. But I got to the end of the episode. I was like, wow, we have very little Baby Yoda in this. And this was still a fucking awesome episode of TV. And it just highlighted to me how how much of a well-oiled machine this show is at this point you know because the thing we talked about at you know with uh, season one was it has this overarching plot that's kind of driving things along but the episodes a lot of times felt like you know uh, side adventure side quest bottle episodes exactly and it made it so fun to explore all these parts of the star wars galaxy and meet all these new people just kind of pop in and out you know you had like bill burr coming in for short cameos one episode cameos and this show has so much to it that i like and that's so well done that you can take probably the most famous and well-liked part of the show and kind of sideline it for a whole episode and it still works out just great so um really impressed how did you feel about chapter nine Oh, yeah. So I loved it as well. And I think that's a great point. That's one of the most important points that shows you that Favreau, Filoni, and friends really know what they're doing. And, and, and that's because Baby Yoda is a less is more thing. Mm-hmm. It's a break in case of an emergency thing. Obviously, plot-wise, Baby Yoda's ability is very deus ex machina. So it can't be all the time. It'll just lose effectiveness, right? Right. And it's also believable that Baby Yoda just doesn't interfere all the time because it's a juvenile being right but that that was a, i think an important sign that baby yoda is you know in this in this episode you get baby yoda, baby yoda looking really cute hanging out on the speeder bike uh, early on shutting the like floating crib cage when the uh, mando's about to kick some ass you know so yep that that was enough you know yep. you got yeah yeah two new gifs for everyone to use online <laughs> but narratively I, I like that decision uh it's funny now coming to Mandalorian season two, uh, which uh, luckily was able to complete uh, production right before quarantine. So the show is not really affected by those shutdowns. Really, one of the last shows we're going to get you know, of that ilk. But Star Wars is in a different place uh, just a year later, right? After the rise of Skywalker, Mandalorian is no doubt the crown jewel of the Star Wars franchise and also the only ongoing thing right now about it right now. So, uh, you know, I think people are even more invested in it. And also, after the pandemic, Disney is going even harder on Disney+. Plus, and this is by far the, the flagship of the streaming service and what reportedly uh-huh. has driven the most subscriptions. So, a lot going into this season. And, I mean, to me, you have this episode that is very procedural in nature, traditional, yet it ends and you still kind of get the serial ongoing Mandalorian story uh, to to keep you waiting for next week and more importantly it's just like incredibly well made and entertaining Mm -hmm. the whole time and it has lots of cool like lore stuff you're a hardcore fan but like season one you don't need to know that stuff to enjoy the Mandalorian so to me this was like a total success as a season premiere yeah you know in a lot of ways it was like 
um, the good, the bad, and the ugly mixed with Jaws, uh, mixed with Star Wars. <laughs> and to have an episode that kind of encapsulates all of those uh, types of genres and does it succinctly and well. And, and the attention to detail, I thought, was really impressive on this, right? So one of the like behind-the-scenes things was the uh, the sand people, right? They kind of have to come together with the people of this town to defeat this big worm, the sandworm. But the they actually brought in a sign language consultant for the sand people to make sure that the the made up uh, sign language that they come up with is fairly accurate and makes sense to what some, uh, someone who doesn't have hearing ability might actually do. I, just like that sort of thing is so impressive to me and like so thoughtful. Just um, really, I think highlights how much they're putting into the show to make it uh, inclusive and and well well made yeah you know and i think the tattooing episode in season one was i think pretty universally seen as the weakest episode of season one and perhaps highlight a potential flaw of the show would be just being unable to avoid the uh, popular trappings of traditional star wars namely going back to tattooing again Mm -hmm. and again and again but going back in this instance made sense because of where that first episode left us off with those, you know, clicking spurs after uh, Mandalorian killed Fennec Shan, that guy he was with, right? And you get that teaser at the end of mm-hmm. this premiere episode. We'll get to that in a second. But to me, I was so thrilled to see that Sand People stuff, to see more of the Tuscan Raiders because you get, you don't get a lot of it, but you get kind of a glimpse more into the Tuscan Raider culture and the fact that they're not just these mindless savages the way they were originally introduced, right? Reminded me a little bit of how Attack of the Clones, you know, suggested, albeit again, not, not super well, but suggested that uh, it's, it's, a, it's a full culture. And this is something that's actually portrayed mm-hmm. really well in the Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic video game, where there's a whole big side quest around the Tusken Raiders. And also in that game was the fact that you kill a crate dragon. And I was just blown away by the fact that they went for the crate dragon on this show. They actually, they actually did that. That was really cool. You know, a crate dragon. That, that you know, remember the Easter egg back in New Hope where you see 3PO walking on the dunes, you see the skeleton. That's what we just saw in the flesh, mm-hmm. and it, 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 was, it was pretty nuts. But like those little moments, right? Like you see the sand people walking in single file as they call up Damas Pelgo. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I see that. Obi Wan, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, and then beforehand, right? Like uh, one of them's sharpening its gaffy stick on the teeth of a bantha, something we haven't seen before. Just little like nods that like fill stuff in fucking love it man uh, yeah it's it's, awesome. it's so great how it pulls in so many parts of the star wars universe uh, and does it in a way that doesn't feel forced or phony or like overdone like it just kind of feels natural in, in the storytelling and you know it i i laughed out loud when timothy oliphant came in um because him playing the same role over and over is just so funny. It's kind of like, uh, forgetting his name, um, the guy that was uh, uh, Ted Kennedy in uh, Chappaquiddick. Jason Clark. Yes, Jason Clark, how he always plays a cuck. Like, Timothy Oliphant only plays like a Marshall slash Sheriff character now. Wise cracks in his character. Yes. Charismatic. Yeah. And it's just handsome. Like, it's, <laughs> that's like the whole role. And um, man, I. I it was such a delight to like get him in this episode. It was cool to see them like interacting and 
um the way that the show just like pulls in these you know top-notch actors for an episode a scene and fits them in so perfectly it's just it's such a well-oiled machine at this point it's really impressive i mean yeah, i mean that opening scene which i also liked where mando gets the information that leads him back to tatooine that one-eyed alien guy he uh, talks to gets betrayed by and then kill uh leaves for dead that, that guy was john leguizamo at least voiced by it <laughs> wasn't played you know it's like this little touches those little things um the guy who played the weekway bartender in Mos Pelgo on Tatooine. That was, uh, I forget his name, but a co- uh, co-star with uh, Oliphant on Justified, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you know, you come into Mandalorian season two, getting more Emmy nominations for the first season. I think anyone actually expected. But in general, just everyone's thinking about the show. Uh, in, in in a high regard and like i said there's a lot of riding on the, the future success of the show for disney plus but one thing that i i was uh a little disappointed by going into the season was that we got some like kind of like quote spoilers in in the trades and like reporting one of those was all offense presence in the show and casting is fine right like we knew Werner Herzog was cast in season one but right. The presence of Boba Fett's armor, or at least Oliphant wearing Mandalorian armor that wasn't his, was like known ahead of time. And that kind of like spoiler detail being kind of rapidly reported on in a mainstream way kind of let me down because people immediately pieced together, oh, he must be playing Cobb Vanth from the Aftermath novels. Like the hardcore fans kind of pieced it together instantly, right? And mm-hmm. then we got word that Tamura Morrison is returning to the show which only can mean a handful of things, right? Of course, he played Jango Fett and Commander Cody in the prequels and is the face of all the clones. So he's what? He's either a surviving clone, which we know of some, but mo- most likely he's Boba Fett and Boba Fett's back. Like it was like, kind of like instantaneous. And I wish that was a secret because the baby Yoda reveal, something that was not spoiled in any way at all, was one of the best TV moments of 2019. Yeah. And maybe that became like the meme of the year, right? That was something that was so closely guarded and landed in such a way and kind of just blew minds, really, because no one had really entertained the idea of something like that being in the show, especially the first episode. Uh, something as fan servicey and kind of hyped as the confirmation of Boba Fett's survival from the Sarlacc and his continuing presence in the story uh, in, in the new canon. I wish that had been protected as well. So that kind of disappointed me. But, I mean, we really have no idea where the direction of the season is going, despite more leaks and rumors about other characters showing up. So that's still good. I guess they're catching the important stuff. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, what, what did you think when you saw Tamura Morrison chilling with a scarred face and a gaffy stick on his back? Uh, you know, I, I guess because I'm not, uh, I'm not as... You didn't recognize him? Well, no, I, I, I knew who he was at the end, but I guess because I haven't, I've been intentionally trying to avoid hearing like uh, casting stuff where it was like, I, I knew he was cast, but like I kind of forgotten. Um, so when I saw him, I was like, oh, okay. Like uh, I, I remember he's supposed to be in this. I think more than anything, I was like, oh, they're going to have to come back to Tatooine to like obviously connect with him again in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm excited to, to see how they're going to tie him in, what role he's going to play in the, the season moving forward um you know if if he's going to have a an issue with mando or not um 
you know, once he obviously returns the armor to him, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. But overall, I just, um, I just find myself very intrigued by all the choices that they're making. Um, I agree, though. I, I do wish some of the stuff wasn't leaking out because, like you said, that Baby Yoda moment was just such a moment. And uh, it seems like it's this show is going to be covered so closely now that it's going to be hard to yeah. get some of those surprises. I mean, and I'm reminded, like, Rosario Dawson is may or may not be in this show as yeah. the action debut of Ahsoka. Yeah. Very hyped thing. Uh, Katie Sackoff might be reprising her voice work role as Bo-Katan, a notable Mandalorian character from Clone Wars and Rebels. Um, those things are not confirmed, but people seem to be assuming they're real. And despite that, I mean, there's still a, whole, a lot we don't know about what they're going to do, whether those are glorified cameos, if the narrative really is going to shift. Filoni and Favreau and friends have really been saying that this is a bigger season and it's going to feel almost more like Thrones where the lead character, lead protagonist changes episode to episode. I think that's a really cool idea because there's only a handful of people that could take turns as the lead. So it seems like more people are going to be introduced. Um, you know, if you look at the, that season uh, trailer, there's some cool locale suggestions there, perhaps Mon Calamari, that'd be really exciting. Mm. But um, yeah, we still really don't know too much. So it's hard to complain all, uh, all that much, but. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of demonstrating that you're going to go bigger while still sticking to exactly what you do so well, uh, this premiere really showed that. And yeah, that was great. For you, I, I know you're a bit more of a uh, bigger Star Wars fan than I am. Um, a lot more aware of like the, the finer details of the universe. Is there a uh, reported rumor or a suspected plot uh development that you're most looking forward to or uh, like a character you're most excited to see i mean it has to be rosario ahsoka mm-hmm. and just what that entails a lot of people are starting right. to point pain connections where where star wars rebels leaves off with ahsoka trying to find the lead of rebels bridger ezra ezra bridger who's kind of off in the uh the vast reaches of space and whether bringing baby yoda to ezra and ahsoka what 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 could that mean? Are we going to connect those two things? Maybe will this lead into Dave Filoni's next show that he will uh, show run? Right, mm. Rebels is done. Clone Wars was finished with a nice bow. This later this earlier this year. Check the review out. But Filoni is going to start show running again. He doesn't show run the Mandalorian. That's Favreau, right? Will the Mandalorian kind of be like a soft prologue? to Filoni's new show and is that new show actually going to be live action now instead of animated um, I think that's kind of where all the hardcore people have their heads at if, if there's something we can draw and whether even if we get that in, in earnest by the end of this season or if it's another season away because we know what Cash and Andor Rogue One show and the Obi-Wan show those are closer to, to airing than anything Filoni's doing so right. probably going to be a while but yeah that, that's where I'm at that, that kind of stuff yeah, I can't wait to see Rosario and, and Ahsoka in this show. Going to be really cool. Um, Man- and Mandalorian, I mean, just excellent TV show, even if you're not as in the, the Star Wars weeds as, as Dave is. So check it out and leave your thoughts below if you're watching on our YouTube video. What do you want to see this, this season? What did you like about season uh, or episode one of season two? We didn't get Giancarlo yet. Yeah, I know. He's and that, that the Dark Saber. I'm excited to see all of it again. Um, why don't we talk about another show, though, that 
I thought was really strong. And that's Queen's Gambit on Netflix. The Scott Frank and Alan Scott production um, adapted off the book of the same name by uh, was it Walter Tevis? I think so, from 1983. I wasn't sure if I was going to say that last name right. But Annie Taylor-Joy, who is a rising yeah, a young actress in the uh, film world and TV world now, mm-hmm. um, plays Beth Harmon, this uh, chess savant, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of details the story of her life and her rise to becoming the one of the best chess players in the world. And um, this was a show I wasn't super, you know, looking forward to. It wasn't something I expected to really like get much out of. And I was blown away. Uh, totally exceeded my expectations. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy uh, might be getting the, the season pass soon. Might be on like the same Vikander level if, if oh, she keeps it up. Me already. Um, totally into the show. I see you nodding, so I'm guessing you were enjoying it as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I had no idea about this show until uh, the, the reviews came up. Like, oh, there's an Anya Taylor-Joy Netflix show? It's about chess in the sixties. What really? Female Bobby Fisher? Fuck yeah, that sounds awesome. And everyone also was like, "Oh yeah, the show is dope." And I was like, "Fuck yeah, this is this is really unexpected." Again, given the quarantine stuff, it's like I felt I thought I had a good handle on everything that's left to come out because of production delays, and yet something still snuck up on me. You gotta love PQV. Um, but yeah, I mean, Annie Taylor Joy. Well, I mean, I seen her earlier this year. She was in Emma, one of the last movies I saw in a movie theater before the quarantine. Um, it was really, really good. Um, you know, Thoroughbreds, I think she's absolutely magnetic in that. Uh, you know, she made her name, obviously, with Robert Eggers' debut film, The Witch. So she's compiling an impressive CV uh, for someone in her early 20s. And uh, notably, she was uh, cast in the Mad Max Furiosa prequel to uh, by George Miller, and will be in Edgar Wright's upcoming Last Night in Soho. So the train is rolling for Annie Taylor Joy. If you don't know, get on board now. But I think the Queen's Gambit is a great use of her talents, and really the show, seven episodes, is a vehicle for her. And uh, you know, I think without uh, Anya's talents, the show might not be nearly as engaging as it is. But uh, you combine her with Scott Frank and. I think it's it's pretty magical at times. Yeah, the the thing about this show is it, it makes chess look super cool. And um I the thing about chess is it's such a game that's about what's going on in your head. Mm-hmm. You're hardly ever talking out like yeah. what you're doing or talking out what's happening. It's very slow. Right. I mean, not the greatest thing to observe as a spectator. Right. And so having this character that is so often doing something that is internal um that is slow uninteresting how do you make that interesting and i think you cast the actress with maybe the most unique face um out there obviously still an incredibly attractive and beautiful person but the anya taylor joyce has a very unique face and the way she can use yes and the way she can use her eyes or like suck in her cheeks or like clench her jaw mm-hmm. to like portray how she's feeling, what she's thinking, whether it's 
when she knows she has someone beat or she's losing a grip on a game and doesn't know how to like slow herself down. I just thought that was an incredibly well done performance using those like nonverbal cues by her um, and that those that physical acting. And even beyond that, I think the way that she really portrays this person with a very traumatic past uh, struggling with um, substance abuse um, and addiction, um, looking for uh, any semblance of love and affection and not really knowing how to like develop these kind of relationships. I think she plays this broken person so well um, while also having this like very, well, obviously extremely competent side to her and this almost like um, neurotic drive to become the best. It was just a really um, amazing performance by her superb you might say um, but I also really liked a lot a lot of the big characters in this you know the people that kind of pop in and out and one that particularly stood out to me was uh, Tommy Brody Sangster who played Benny Jojin Jojin um, also um, the little boy from Love Actually which is how I'm always going to remember him like his face has not changed in the last True. like 20 years um, it's like 30 now right yeah, and it's it's amazing because he could play 16 or 30, but at any time Benny came in, I was like, all right, him and Beth have so much chemistry together, like play off each other so well. Those scenes were really riveting. Yeah. Um, I also really liked um, ha- uh, Harry Melling, yeah. That's uh, who was like, yeah, who was... I, kind of like evil at the beginning almost seemed and then really softened and I was like this guy it feels like always plays like a dick and then kind of softened it was nice to see him get a little bit of range in that character yeah I mean shout out Harry Melling who everyone knows but might not recognize as Dudley Dursley in Harry Potter but he's actually yep. having quite the character actor run of late I mean just this year you had him in the devil all the time mm-hmm. in the old guard in addition to the Queen's Gambit and he was also in Ballad of Buster Scruggs so Good for him. He seems to really be carving out a new role uh, as an adult actor, which is cool. But what happened with Harry Beltic initially when he set up as the local or local or state champion, I forget, in Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, kind of connects to a few other thoughts I had about the season because he's set up as this like really cocky, overconfident, uh, perhaps misogynistic chess player. You have the mom set up later on to take advantage of Beth's success and career monetarily. You have this deadbeat dad who is like something off about him. Is he going to be abusive? You have the uh, orphanage where, oh, are they going to treat Beth poorly? Oh, they did give her drugs, but they stopped when they were told to stop, right? There's all these like false flags about uh, some maybe some more conventional cliches you expect to happen. They don't actually happen. So I kind of like that where they always kind of like turned around when there was like a narrative that might have been kind of familiar and easy to foresee. And and the Harry one really stood out. Like after he beats her, or she beats she beats him, he like has this weird look on his face and he just shakes her hand and congratulates her. And I was like, wow, that's not what I expected to happen. Because mm-hmm. leading up to that, you know, she's getting doubted because she's a female chess player. And it gets in the sixties, right? And it's like cool. Yep. I, I kinda liked how it defied that convention for me. Also it's a really like well-realized fictional chess world. There's all these names and past, you know, champions, both on the Soviet side, uh, state side, 
um, all, all these things. And, and I think what, what's, what's, what's important about the show, and I think this podcast, Scott Frank and Friends, is they don't like waste their time explaining to you who is who in the chess world and what's a Sicilian defense, what's the Queen's Gambit. It, they just kind of go with it because the minutia of the chess is not actually that important to the show, even if it's probably still interesting to learn. Mm. And they didn't, never got bogged down in that. Also, production-wise, they switched up how they would film and shoot the various chess matches, so it never felt stale. Right. T- tons of little things that how, how the Queen's Gambit goes that I I was kind of just always really engaged. Yeah, I, I thought... Um... I was a little bit worried in the first couple episodes, right? When she's this little girl who is sitting in bed and you can, she can look up at the ceiling while she's, you know, tripping off of these tranquilizers and uh, sees the pieces moving around and can play the games out. And I was like, okay, this seems like a bit like, I don't know, like Rain Man-ish almost in, in a sense. And are they going to really like, savant, like right. She is. And, and it, but are they going to lean into this? Like, as like her, like she's like visualizing it all the time. And I actually thought, them getting away from that but then pulling that back near the end when uh i think it's in the final match when she's playing the the russian and he does a move she doesn't expect and instead of relying on you know what she studied she just kind of looks up and starts seeing this chessboard on the ceiling i thought that was so well done and like that didn't allow that to be like played out in a sense but like also then kind of brought around the beginning of the show and and pulling it all together was so yeah uh, i I love how i forgot his name Borka, I forget the, the Russian guy she's playing. Borka, he like looks up at the ceiling. He's like, "What are you looking at?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, no. kind of like moment of levity because we hadn't had that used yet, you know. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, uh, again, we go back to uh, Anya Taylor Joy. I mean, this is a total thing for her because you really end up wanting Beth to just turn things around. You know, like every time she slips back into substance use, you're you're sad when she uh in that final episode when she gets told by the uh the old russian guy like you're maybe the best chess player I ever i met it's so satisfying um you know when like all of her like uh opponents that she slept with are like calling her like it's totally unrealistic that these guys would all get together and like be calling russia to like give her these moves but at the same time you're like oh this is so heartwarming and nice yes. like yeah. even though parts really of it yeah, even though parts of it felt a little bit like camp, you're unrealistic, you still find yourself like totally satisfied and like really enjoying those highs. So definitely super impressed with the show. I mean, speaking of the visuals too, we do jet set around in the story. I yeah. think it always looks re- really great, especially when like we're in Paris and stuff. But you know, like when, when she starts getting some money and like as like more lavish hotel room stuff like that, but also like the wardrobe department just showed the fuck out for this show. She's. Mm. Uh, Beth's wearing new clothes like every scene <laughs> and as she gets money they are fucking fire ass fits you know yep like that also kind of like really wow me at the end I thought her hair uh, again always seemed oh, to be yeah. curled because that's what we do on TV these days <laughs> it looks good uh, I really love how the way that they made her ugly was they just gave her like a bad haircut and then like Classic. the minute she gets a regular haircut they're like oh wow Anya Taylor-Joy is actually a really attractive person who knew grown up Harmon oh god uh i I think that was the other thing was i found myself sometimes not sure of her age you know because she was playing with so many older people there was like a point especially when she started playing in some of the bigger tournaments where it was like 
these people are hitting on her. Is she still like 16? Like how old are we talking here? Yeah. Um, obviously something that during that time period was a little bit looser, I'd say. Yeah. But um, I do think seeing her like explore her like sexuality also felt quite realistic, you know, like um, it, she has a couple of flings with random guys. And then when she hooks up with I Benny, yeah it, it, she's like oh that's how it's supposed to feel and it feels very much like oh okay she like had a lot of bad sex and then kind of found someone that knew what they were doing like i felt like that was mm-hmm. like one of the most realistic like sex lives i've ever seen in a tv show sure. any other thoughts on this the mom's played by mariel heller who's yeah for being a director didn't even know she acted um but yeah, there, there she's great. She's great. Well, like I was just all ready to fucking hate the mom. I never quite got there because again, the show kept kind of pulling you back and turning you around and stuff. I always liked how that narrative was used. Um, you know, just thinking, just the like the the, the rhythm of the show. Um, it, it was number one on Netflix for like a whole week. It really seems to have been like a sleeper hit for a lot of people. And you know, mm-hmm. shout out chess, man. I played yeah. a game of chess recently because of this show. Chess is dope. And I I mean, apart from like searching for Bobby Fisher, the Steve Zalian movie, like there's not a lot of chess dramatizations. But again, the, the cast Ani Teller Joy is just just kind of a it's it's it sounds easy on paper, but it's really a masterstroke and reminds me a lot of uh Florence Pugh two years ago on Little Drummer mm-hmm. Girl. You have this kind of world class rising star young actor. And you just give them this great part on TV mm-hmm. with talented people around them, and it's going to turn out good. Yeah, the uh, our TV end of year list is going to be um, tight this year. Going to be oh, tough, tough picks. Definitely. Dave, why don't we wrap up though with a uh, a movie? Did you see this in person? Did not. Oh, you. So this this is a, you're watching it through a film festival though, right? Correct. It's all virtual. So I saw Minari. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Independent Film Festival of Boston. Last year, I attended that in person and got to see Marriage Story early, which was great. It was kind of cool to be in that festival, packed crowd vibe with a bunch of film fans. And like, it's a unique energy that I hadn't experienced before. Obviously, with COVID, all film festivals have been listed. LA ones been doing like drive-in things, but everyone usually is just doing kind of virtual stuff. And it was cool that I was able to sign up and see this. Minari was their opening night film. And this is a movie that uh, was at Sundance earlier this year, physically, of course, where it won the Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award for Drama um, and has been getting a lot of hype uh, as an A24 film produced by A24 and Plan B and currently sitting at 100% Rotten Tomatoes with 34 reviews. So there's been a lot of hype about Minari. It does not currently have a release date yet, but playing more festivals virtually in the fall, they're they're gonna really a24 is gonna put it out soon with oscar hopes and i'm getting to those oscar hopes but yeah so i got to see that virtually it's kind of interesting to get something and i get the link and it's like you have four hours to watch this after those four hours fuck you you pay doesn't matter <laughs> and like the second wow. constraint it w- was interesting so i just like turned off my phone and watched it on my tv and, and, and it was pretty cool um and most importantly, the movie's really great. And, you know, it stars uh, Stephen Yun, who I think people that have been paying mm. attention have realized is like a real one when it comes to acting. I thought he was Oscar worthy 
in a supporting role in Burning two years ago. This is another film in Korean directed by Lee Isaac Chung, a Korean American, which is a semi-autobiographical tale about uh, the immigrant experience in America. And uh, Lee Vin Yun, who plays Jacob Hughes, and his wife, who is a bit of a newcomer in Korea, Han Yi Ri, uh, who plays his wife Monica, they move from California to Arkansas. And Jacob really wants to uh, start a farm and kind of become more independent financially in his life. And he brings his two uh, young kids with him. And that's kind of the story. And it's about, you know, um, coming to grips with your own identity, both within your family, within the world, stuff like assimilation um, into culture. And it's incredibly captivating the whole time, really heartwarming. Um, Alan Kim, who plays David, the young boy who's at the center of the story, uh, really precocious child performance. Uh, obviously, hmm. child performances are often a mixed bag. And listening to Lee Isaac yep. talk about this, uh, Alan Kim was actually the youngest boy to audition for this role, which is kind of remarkable, honestly. But he was really good. And it's an important uh, piece of the story because his character, David, is like probably like, I don't know, eight years old, 10 years old, pretty young. And he has like a heart murmur. And it's like something that kind of is hovering over the story the whole time. And there's the conflict between Jacob and Monica about, you know, we moved kind of to this rural area in Arkansas. Hospital's kind of far away now. We have a kid who has a medical condition. And then Jacob is really motivated to make things work for this family. And things get complicated further when uh, they bring Monica's uh, mother, uh, the, the kid's grandmother, comes over from Korea, played mm. by Yoon Yoo Jung, who's a famous uh, uh, actor in Korea who's been in a million things. And she was really great in this. And I, I would just, yeah, I don't want to really spoil what happens, but Will, Will, Will Patton, one of the few uh, like white characters with a lot of lines, he kind of plays this like Pentecostal Christian character who's helping Jacob on the farm. Really, I think, measured but effective performance from him. And I would just say that seek out Minari when it's available. Um, it'll probably be on VOD eventually. They'll probably do some limited theater runs first but again we don't know the plans yet but uh, really captivating I think heartwarming story and yeah I think it looks it looks really really awesome and it, it's really just all character and yeah if you've been on Stephen Young I think this will make you feel really good I think he's definitely in the mix if not getting close to the lock category for best actor nomination, mm. which would be very well earned, really rooting for that. So uh, stay tuned on Minari, but uh, it's, it's definitely worth the hype. I really love how there's been so many more Asian stories uh, being made in, into film and that are becoming more aware in the American film industry and, and consciousness. Um, I th it seems like there's a lot of me on that bone to explore. And um, even if the story isn't necessarily much different than something that could happen in the United States, I think the cultural aspects of it um, seem to really give it a, a new twist that makes it super interesting and engaging from everything you're describing. It seems like 
the the character development and, and exploration of this is top notch. Yeah, absolutely. And Lee Isaac Chung, this is definitely his highest profile movie today. This is his fourth film, but he notably, very nobly, has been tapped to film the live action adaptation of Your Name, which is of course the uh, highest grossing anime film of all time from 2016. So we'll be seeing more of uh, Lee Isaac Chung very soon. But yeah, I think Minari, uh, it's A24's jewel, I think, for this award season. And, uh, you know, given the year we've had where there's only a handful of movies, I think a movie like this, which probably will not be very heavily watched, but will be very heavily uh, acclaimed. And the odds are good that we're going to see some nominations for this movie. And that's, that's just because that will bring even more people to this story, which I think uh, is really effective and heartwarming, whether the immigrant experience is something you've personally experienced or not. So definitely pay attention to Minari when it's uh, available. Well, I think, I think that's going to do it for for that's going to do it for us this week, Dave. What should the people be watching for next week? We'll listen we to have a little bit coming up as of right now, but like always, subject to change. With a little mix album, notably their first album since signing to American record labels. Interesting to see if that means much for the music itself. And also, there's a H or not a FX on Hulu mini series starting. Kate Mara and Nick Robinson's A Teacher about mm. a teacher having an affair with a student. Starting next week. We'll see what's up. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, hit that subscribe if you're watching on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to catch the podcast any way you want to listen to it. And uh, follow us on Twitter at nostalgiapod. We'll catch you next week. Count the votes. Hey.